As you get to know the church, and probably more specifically, I'm, I'm the problem in this equation, is if we... You don't even, you don't even know what I'm going to say. You, you have no idea what I'm going to say. Whatever it is. <laughs> I wish you'd agree with what I'd say in staff meetings more often. Um, it's, it's hard for me to stop series once we begin them. <laughs> You know, once we get into some thought, it's like, man, there's just more there. Let's just keep going. So it's a move of God for me to say this is the end of the series that we've been in since we moved into the building. But this would be part six of Welcome to Lakeview with the intention being that you would have an opportunity as someone who maybe is new to the church uh, or getting to know the church to get to know the heart of the burden that the pastors carry and what we seek to communicate anytime we stand here and handle the word of God and communicate that to you. Um, we're, we're not following some script written some faraway office somewhere. We are we're seeking to share with you the burden that God has given us to lead the church. And this morning, we will be doing the last installment. And we, we started this series at the front door. All right, welcome to Lakeview at the front door. The first thing you would encounter if you walk through the front door, not the side door. Uh, if you walk through the front door, you would, you would be stepping right across a plaque plaque that quotes the invitation of the Son of God, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what we believe that God's ultimately caused us and called us to do is to be a place where the people encounter the invitation of God, where you have a sense that God's reaching out into your life, not just some church, Lakeview Christian Center, but the eternal God who is personal has drawn you to this place. So that he could communicate something to your life. And ultimately your soul could find rest in him. But having spent any time here on your way out, our hope and desire would be that the vision that that Jesus communicated to his disciples was this vision. And you would step across this plaque on your way out. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, what's an amazing thing in these two plaques is you have, have, you have humanity wandering on planet Earth trying to figure out, well, you know, what's my life about? You know, every one of us are busy trying to find joy, happiness, purpose. And you have a God who's standing and saying, you know, your soul is restless, but if you come to me, I'm going to give you what your soul is after. And then when you come and you encounter Christ that way and he fills your soul, then he's going to turn around and he's going to say this to you. Now go. Now, if, you're, if you've been part of the kingdom of God for any time, if you, you know something about church life, and you know, I think most churches have made the mistake of, of being measured in their own understanding of what, what is it that makes a good, sound, healthy church. And people tend to measure it by, by their attendance, quite honestly. By how many people come. Well, I want to tell you, I think a better way of measuring a healthy church is by how many people go. There's a lot of us who come. But quite honestly, too many churches are suffering from being able to gather a thousand people into a building... But when it comes to going into the world, when it comes to taking the glory of God, when it comes to being a living message, well, somehow that kind of gets whittled down to the specialists, to those few people. 
to the paid pastoral staff. I mean, that's what they do. I mean, the rest of us, you know, we're busy living life. I mean, I'm glad you guys got time to do that. Well, yeah, I know there's a couple of folks in the mix that are just kind of peculiarly weird, you know. They're just, they're just out there, you know. They're just leading stop signs to Christ. And just, they're just those kind of people everywhere. But, you know, for the most part, you know, I'm coming. I need to be fed. I need to be encouraged. You know, listen, the health of a church needs to be measured by how many of us are going. How much going is there in our life? How much of a sense of there's something in me by the grace of God that is to be conveyed and portrayed into the lives of others until I draw my last breath. And there's nothing more important in my life than that. Well, that I think would be a better measure of a healthy church. So I'm going to just look at two aspects that would come from this passage. One would be going, and the other would be the gospel. I'm going to look at the passage in Mark that is the twin passage to this passage in the gospels. But, you know, we are, we are to make disciples of all men, but we make disciples through the proclamation of the gospel, So I didn't want to spend as much time this morning majoring in the process through which disciples are made. Because if we don't get the gospel right, we cannot make disciples. So the gospel needs to be clear. So we're going to look at the gospel and we're going to look at going. And I want to start with the gospel this morning in your notes. Well, where to go, but where to go and do what? Go and say what? When we encounter Christ and he does something in our lives of the most importance, and we're sent, what, what do we go and do? What's, what's the message to be proclaimed? What are we demonstrating to people? Well, you know, let me help frame this thought a little bit with a few questions in your outline. Question one, is Christianity some form of humanitarian aid organization with religious overtones? Well, you know what's most apparent to people? Listen, what is most apparent to people is not God. God is not what is most apparent to people. What is most apparent to people is people. What is first in most people's priority list is man, man's experience, man's suffering, man's need. What is not first and primary for most is God. That's why the Ten Commandments starts with God having to adjust us to say, you shall have nothing before me. Well, that's the great battle. We put everything before God. So humanity puts things before God. And so when you get into the realm of what is Christianity, it can kind of get blurred into, well, it's, it's one of a bunch of things that are there to help humanity. You know, if, we, if you travel to Africa, <clears throat> you'd find UNICEF, and you'd find world hunger organizations, and you'd find Christian missionaries, right? And they're all doing something that's very, very important. And the Christian missionaries are there with a little religious overtone to them. If you traveled into the streets of New Orleans, all the need after Katrina, you'd find Habitat for Humanity, you'd find the the United Way, and you'd find some church groups, and they're all there. They're all there together, helping people. I mean, the church groups are doing it with a little bit of a religious overtone. Is that what Christianity is? Or maybe this way. Is Christianity one way among many ways? You know, if we don't start with God, if we put God as secondary, we start with man, you have... Man, humanity is on this journey through life, right? We'll all admit that. We're all on this journey through life. We're trying to find something. We might agree a little bit on what the end product should be. But what humanity's message is today is, well, every person on the planet's on this journey through life. And there are many paths. 
that folks can take on this journey. And, you know, you've chosen, you've chosen Christianity. Again, great, that's great. You know, other, other folks have chosen other paths. Is that the way Christianity should be described? See, I mentioned last week this terminology. It's very important terminology as to whether we are man-centered or whether we are God-centered. Whether we start with man or whether we start with God. See, I mean, here, you, you, you throw the switch on this thought. Which thought do you think more? Does man have the freedom to choose his path? Right, man, I mean, people have the freedom to choose, right? They're free agents. They can choose what they want, the path that they want. Is that where your thought goes, or does your thought get more comfortable with God has the right to assign one path and one path only? Doesn't that sound too narrow? Don't we want to take God to task on that? Don't we want to say, whoa, 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 God, that sounds Neanderthalish. It's, it, you know, this is, this is the Western world. I mean, come on, there's plurality. There's many paths that are right. And see, the reason why we feel this need to defend that is because we start with man. We start with man, and then we invite God into man's life. It's kind of like, well, you know, it might be great to have some kind of a higher power. You know, all the 12-step programs have a higher power. We can invite a higher power into our life, into our pathways, and he can help us on our path. Well, if you start with man, that's, that's how God fits. But what if you start with God? What if you start with a God who existed from eternity past, nothing else did? There's not a person, there's not a planet, there's not a light, there's nothing. And he comes up with a design plan, and he says, I want everything to exist for this reason. And he creates and creates and creates, and he puts man into this equation. Now, now, interesting, he didn't stop with ants and bugs on trees and say, you know, this is my crown of creation. But he could have. You know, don't flatter ourselves. We could be the bugs of the universe, and the bugs could be for the glory of God. I mean, let's not be... Right? God started this thing. It doesn't start with man. God originates this thing. So... Are we comfortable with the idea that the God who created everything turns around and says, I've chosen one path that everyone must travel on? Now, which, which switch do you want to throw? Whoa, wait, man has the freedom or God has the right? It's a very important thing when we come to understanding Christianity and the gospel. The last question there is, is Christianity central and essential to defining every human being's existence? Is there anybody on this planet, is there any people group on this planet that we would say Christianity is not central to them or Christianity is not essential to them? Something else is central and most important for them, most critical for them. Or is Christianity that? Well, these questions get answered by what we understand the gospel to be. In Mark chapter 16, the twin verse from the plaque out in front of the church says this in verse 15, Go into all the world... And proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And this is one of those verses where, you know, you either, you either encounter the Bible and you go, okay, that's really what it says. Wow. Huh. I need, I need to think about that because that has ramifications. Or we just avoid the Bible and never read it and say, well, God would just never say something like that because this is, this is a belief with consequences. He who believes the gospel will be saved. He who does not believe the gospel will be condemned. That's not my words. It's not the words of some bigoted race idea. 
that, oh, you know, just the Christians have got it right. This is, this is we start with God. This is, this is what God has said. This is a belief with consequences. And, and notice the global, universal impact of this admonition. Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, hey guys, I'm sending you. I'm sending you from this place. I'm sending the disciples who've walked with me for these three years. I'm sending Lakeview Christian Center. Go into the world where they really don't have a belief system in place. Go there because they don't believe anything. They've got to believe something. But don't go to the Muslims and don't go to the Hindus and don't go to the Jews. You know, don't, don't go to those guys because they already believe something. You know, and it's just as long as they believe that's what's important. You know, listen, uh, go to the third world countries where they don't have technology and they don't have medicine and they haven't figured out life. They don't have Oprah and Dr. Phil. They, you know, they, they just don't know what life's really all about. Go there with this message. See, because the, the other guys already believe stuff. Now, see, this is, this is the razor's edge of Christianity. Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Now, Maybe we don't read this verse with much insight, but doesn't everybody that we go to already believe something? See, we want to, I don't know, we want to neuter Christianity and make it non-offensive. Listen, there's no way for it not to be offensive. The very nature of this admonition from Jesus Christ himself is go with this message to people who believe another message. They already believe something else. So, there's an element here where you're, if you're going to them, in a way, you're going to be telling them what they believe is wrong. Now, can you just travel with me here? I'm not trying to get you to agree with me or conclude. Can we just see that this is the implications of these verses? To go with the gospel as your message means you're going to go to somebody who believes something different than the gospel. And in no way does Jesus back off and say, listen, guys, you need to go, but there's a bunch of people you don't need to go to because they already believe something. And it's cool. I mean, there's a lot of paths that people can journey on. They can journey on the path that I'm suggesting, or they can journey on another path. No, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. All right, could not be more clear in your outline. Go everywhere to everyone and proclaim one thing to them all. Go everywhere to everyone and proclaim one thing to them all. Proclaim the gospel to them all. And that raises the question, well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel that we're to be conveying to folks And I want to draw our attention here a little bit to some insights from a few other folks on the gospel and on the gospel presentation. I think it's necessary for the church to hear this. But I would just say, and I want to throw this umbrella over what I'm going to say about the gospel. I would say the gospel is both a word to be believed and a person to know. It is both a a word, it is conceptual to be believed and be able to put our faith in. It is a person to know. Remember, Jesus invited people to himself. He didn't invite them to a system. He didn't invite them to a document. He invited them to himself. Come to me. If you believe in me, 
I am. This, this was about a relationship with the living God. So the gospel is both conceptual understanding to be believed, but it is a person to know. When we encounter the gospel, we are encountering the living God himself. I, I love the title of one of John Piper's books. As a matter of fact, Do Not Go to Heaven Without Having Read This Book. Okay? God, this is the title of it, God is the Gospel. Now, I, you know, Piper's written some incredible stuff. Um, and this book wouldn't be my favorite that he's written, but it would be right up there. God is the Gospel. And I think a lot of Christians need to be hearing that because I think we have, we've fallen in love with some facts and we've gotten away from God is the Gospel. The thing that we're ultimately encountering is the person of God. Now, that person and the gospel itself is conveyed in word, right? The word became flesh and dwelled among us. It is a word concept that the gospel is as well. Let me get some help here from some smarter dudes than me. Mr. J.I. Packer would be a great scholar from the last century. He's an old guy. I think he's probably been alive the whole century. He says this, I formulate the gospel this way. It is information issuing in invitation. It is proclamation issuing in persuasion. It is an admonitory message embracing five themes. Now, I don't want to overcomplicate the gospel, but I have great concern that we have underinformed the gospel. We've got people singing gospel music that their life and their message has got almost nothing to do with the gospel in the way in which the Bible portrays it. So that gospel term is being thrown around kind of crazy. So I think this is very helpful. Um, to help us think. I'm not quite sure I can think along the lines of Mr. Packer and all these thoughts, but he would clarify five themes that have to do with the gospel. One would be God, the God of Christian theism. I would just say an accurate biblical depiction of God. Not God as we create him, not God as we prefer him, but God as he really is. You cannot believe in God because you use the term God and you label him something completely different. You, you think of him differently. You have redefined him, just borrowed the terminology and say, but I believe in God. You understand you could believe in the word God, but you don't believe in the person of God because you've not described him the way he really is. So critical to the gospel is an accurate description of God. Secondly, critical to the gospel is humankind. Humankind made in God's image, but, but... Put the emphasis there, made in God's image, but now totally unable to respond to God or do anything right by reason of sin in their moral and spiritual system. Now, this is a hard one, and I, I can't take time in all these points. I'm going to try and resist the temptation to do this. But we would, we would argue with that idea. We would say, I know a lot of people who are doing a lot of right things. Okay? Can I go back to my man-centered and God-centered views? Right by way of a man-centered definition for life, everybody journeying down paths, trying to help each other out and do the best we can to experience life to its fullest. Right in that definition. But what about right, as we said last week, all things exist for the glory of God. I do this for the glory of God. I do this that your attention and applause would be drawn to him, that your amazement would go to him, that you would run hard after God because he is revealed through something I've said, done, been about. That's right. And no man can do that. 
apart from a work of God in his life. Third, critical to the gospel would be the person and work of Christ. The person who, he, who Jesus Christ is. Who do we celebrate having come to the earth as an incarnate man, having come from heaven, led a life that was perfect and fulfilled the demands of the law? The first, remember, you get the first Adam, second Adam issues here. The first man who failed to live before God without being touched by sin. You have the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who did not fail, who lived before God completely and satisfied all of God's perfection. That's who this person is. And then we understand his death and his burial and his resurrection and his rightful claim to the throne of the universe. That's who this person is. So the person and work of Christ would be central. Repentance would be central to the gospel. Now listen, draw some distinction here. Repentance wouldn't be central to the person and work of Christ. But if you ever want to experience the person and work of Christ, it would be central to you and I. It would be central to responding to the person and work of Christ. So it would become central to the gospel, turning from sin to God, from self-will to Jesus Christ. Now, Packer says, fifth one here, I'm a little foggy on. New community. A new family, henceforth, to function under the one father as a family and a fellowship. Um, I would see five somehow needs to be the fruit of life in a human being. If you really do believe God and you really have embraced the gospel, it is going to affect your life. And that effect is going to be shown most typically within the community of those whom God has gathered together. So this would be elements of the gospel. Now look at this other thought from Mr. Packer here. In the case of the gospel, the content includes a diagnosis of the hearer's state and needs before God. Now let me just stop before I go into the rest of this thing. The gospel would include, he says, a diagnosis of the hearer's state and needs before God. In other words, what is your condition as a human being? And what do you need? Now, I'd be very interested if we passed out cards this morning and we wrote down, well, what do you need? And we began to write down a list of what we need. You know, I need to be happy, I need to be healthy. I need to have hope. I need to be loved. Right? Some of these things would begin to flirt with concepts that the Bible says that we need. There would be a list of needs, let me say this, that the priority of them would usually be not biblically informed. How many of us would be sitting here this morning realizing the greatest need before God and in this life that I have is the need to be forgiven? You know, would that be a priority for me to recognize? I have a need to be forgiven. That need to be forgiven is, is touching your life every day of your life. That sense that in us we have violated something that causes our conscience to know there's something wrong about us and there's guilt and there's problems that come out of that. I have a need to be forgiven. How many of us would know I have a need for spiritual life? The Bible says that I am dead in my trespasses and sins. How many would have sort of thrust that to the top of the categories and say, my need, my great need is for spiritual life. How many of us would write down, I have a need to be freed from the power of sin in my life. Sin has power. The Bible describes it like it's plugged in. 
Like it has magnetic force and we are riddled with metal on the inside of us. And you turn that electromagnet on and man, there's power that draws me to it. Maybe you know that's how the Bible describes sin. Sin is not some neutral thing that has no connection to you. Oh, no, no, no. It has an invisible connection to you and it's drawing you every day you are in this planet. Well, I have a need to overcome that somehow. So the gospel would include a diagnosis of the hearer's state and needs before God. Value judgments on the life they live as compared with that which might be theirs. You have to judge your life. And a call to judge themselves to acknowledge the gracious approach and invitation of God in Christ and Listen to this. And to respond by a commitment more radical and far-reaching than any other they will ever make. And the gospel is not fully communicated unless all this comes over. Now, I appreciate Mr. Packer trying to help us see the nuances of the gospel. And we might take exception to some of these nuances. But what is most obvious today, if you study the church is the church is having a hard time making disciples. It's not being done real well. Travel from church to church, from institution and religious group to religious group, you'll find true disciples are rare, hard to find them. Now, might it be that the problem lies with our gospel proclamation? Might it be that the way in which we are presenting and living the gospel lacks the biblical reference points that it needs? And so therefore, we're having a hard time being disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. Well, you can only make disciples if the proclamation of the church and of our lives is the gospel. Listen to this thought from Timothy Keller, his chapter from the compilation of messages, The Supremacy of Christ in a Postmodern World. And he he starts this point, I won't give you all the details, but he starts this point by recognizing the world we live in, it ain't what your grandparents grew up in. It's different. The information in people's lives are different. You know, it's, it's, you know, uh, Annie M. and the farmhouse in Kansas isn't the way people think anymore. Common convictions that were shared by people who came from a Christian culture and populated this country they are not commonly held anymore. They have been redefined. They have been distanced from them. The vocabulary has changed. And he starts with that premise and says, evangelism in a postmodern context must be much more thorough, progressive, and process-oriented. There are many stages to bring people through who know nothing at all about the gospel and Christianity. The problem with virtually all modern evangelism programs is that they assume listeners come from a Christianized background. And so they very lightly summarize the gospel, often in minutes, and go right to the stage of intimacy or personal commitment. You making a personal commitment to Christ. But this is no longer sufficient. Until people's minds and worldviews have been prepared, they hear you say sin and grace, and even God in terms of their own categories. By going too quickly to this overview, you guarantee that they will misunderstand what you are saying. Right, we're throwing out all the right buzzwords. We're talking about, man, you're saved by the grace of God. And, oh, what, what, whoa, whoa, whoa. God who? 
Grace what? Do you understand what most people hear when you say, we're saved by the grace of God? Well, they have a God who, I heard some guy the other day refer to man's ideas about God like a senile Santa Claus. I mean, he's just sitting up in heaven. He's just, you know, twiddling his thumb. You can't offend this God. He's into everything and he's okay with just about everything. And, and then we have the grace of God. Well, if you have a God like that, who's just kind of okay with everything, and you come along and you say, well, I want to, you know, we're saved by the grace of God. Well, I'm sure that God will figure out a way to be nice to me. Sure, grace, that's what probably, grace means nice, right? That's, so you have this Santa Claus God who's nice. I've got no problem with that. Sure, I, what do I do? Pray, sign, what you want me to do? And the gospel has not been understood. Primarily, here's the primary reason, not because you didn't talk about the person's need. And we always talk about their need but because God's not accurately understood. Who God is, that's not who God is. So you can't possibly understand who Christ is and, and, and what he did and come into the earth. I, I like this term that Timothy Keller uses. He says, uh, evangelism must be more process-oriented. I think in today's culture, that's absolutely true. One of the reasons I love Alpha is, is Alpha is not 10 minutes worth of content and make a decision for the rest of your life. It's, it's weeks of content and discussion and thought. Okay, what does that really mean? What does that mean for me? I don't know if I agree with that. And you wrestle through that. And after weeks, someone is able to come to a place where they say, okay, I, well, okay, I think I understand that then. And come to a decision in faith that is much better informed. Now listen, the idea, and, and can I just say this? I'm not trying to, to be antagonistic if this fellow is your favorite guy to listen to on TV. Um, I would just suggest that you, I don't know, listen to the radio. Um, <laughs> you know, the Joel Osteen proclamation of the gospel. Joel Osteen would be one of the, would be probably the biggest church in the country, would be a program on TV that would be one of the most popular Christian programs that people watch. Here is typically what will happen. You have a 30-minute program. I don't squeeze down the minutes, but but in that, there's, there's stories told, there's anecdotes, um, there's a scripture that's read, a couple of scriptures maybe that are read. There's a theme to the message. Typically, the theme is about how your life can improve. Your life isn't going as well as you'd like it to go. Here's the keys to making it go better. And that's kind of the theme of every message. And then at the end, there is a 30-second presentation maybe that sounds something like this. Now, we don't like to close any program without giving you the opportunity to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. Now, if you'd like to do that, here's a prayer that you play, blah, 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 blah. I, I think that's doing serious harm to the gospel because you're going to meet somebody who says, I prayed that prayer. To what God over what issues to meet what need in your life? See, there's something to be said to telling somebody, you're, you're not ready to pray this prayer. I, I don't think you've considered this. I, I don't know if you accurately understand this. Now, part of the difficulty of that is, for instance, I, I mean, at the end of this meeting, I could, I could close this meeting by asking folks if they'd like to pray. And, and whether or not we have sufficiently covered the gospel could be in question, depending on what we went after that morning. Uh, this evening, it's more than likely we will have a time to ask folks to pray. Now, let me just let you know what we're doing in that moment, and perhaps I could give this grace to Joel as well, uh, is depending upon the thought that we're not the only laborers in the harvest field. That somebody else has shared 
They've been being affected by the Spirit of God. God has been leading them to a point. But you will, you will find sometimes, I, I, will not, I will not do altar calls sometimes. I will not just give a, hey, hey, who wants to make a quick decision this morning? Uh, you'll find often we won't do that. Uh, because I believe that the salvation of God is in the hands of God, and it's not just in the way in which I do an invitation at the end of a service, or whether I can get you to acknowledge that I did that, or whether I can get you to come forward. See, do we remember that all of us get saved by the grace of God? Oh, well, that means that God was nice to us. I understand that. No, no, no. That's not what I mean. We get saved by the grace of God, by the mercy of God that runs you down when you are sprinting away from him because we love ourselves and we love sin. And if God didn't overtake us, and win our hearts and bring us to himself, then none of us would come. See, I understand that's what God is describing when he says you are saved by grace. So it doesn't depend on a formulistic, you know, do this. You know, if you walk out of here today and, and I didn't lead you in a sinner's prayer, I did not in any way negate the fact that God is running you down. And if he is, he will overtake you. And you know what, you know what one thing will prove that he overtake you? is I'll start seeing you here. (laughs) Or somebody who invited you to say, hey, so-and-so's going here to this church, or man, God's really doing some things in their life. You know, the person who says, hey, hey, I'm in on that. Yeah, I'm saved by the grace of God. The Santa Claus God who's going to be nice to me, I'm in on that. Sure, do I need to stand? Do I need to sign something? Okay, I'm cool. And that person doesn't ever manifest the life of the Spirit in their lives, right? I mean... That, that's not what we're after. That's not what the gospel is after. Let me move to the second point. Why is the gospel our mandate? Right? The church's mandate is the gospel. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. That's the mandate of every Christian. That's the message. We don't get to have a different one. That's the mandate. Every Christian is given. Now, why is that? Now, let me rescue us. I put this in your outline. Let me rescue us from the idea that, well, you know, there's a lot of paths. There's a lot of wisdom out there. There's a lot of ways that people can try and do life. And you know what I found? This one just works the best. That's why I love the gospel. It's, I mean, it's, it just works. It's great. It's affected my life. Well, man, I'm glad for that. Appreciate that. That's not why it's the church's mandate. The reason why it's the church's mandate is because the God of the universe told us to say it. Can I I bring us back to whether we're man-centered or God-centered again? Right, if the God of the universe says, this is your message, then guess what? This is your message. What if I don't like the way it works? What What if I come across some other things that I think really are good? It doesn't change the fact that the God of the universe who created everything, who has the right over our lives, right? Do we have more freedom than God has right, right? That's that, that whole issue that comes back to us. Well, I have the freedom to believe whatever I want. Well, does God have the right to trump your freedom? I mean, and you know what? Quite honestly, everybody in this room believes that statement I just said. You believe that something has the right to trump your freedom. Right? Isn't the government trumping Vince Manello's freedom right now? Isn't it? He claimed he had the freedom to do what he did. The government stepped in and said, well, we got the right to punish you. So we believe in this. Well, God has the right for the gospel 
to be our message and to tell us, this is the mandate on your life. This is your message, the gospel. Second, and this will probably appeal to us more, and it's true as well in scripture, but it is secondary. The gospel is man's oxygen. It's the oxygen of the human race. It's what man needs more than any other need in his life. Now, the challenge is getting man to realize the gospel is his greatest need. Right? If, if you were in a, a diving bell, you know those diving bells that they lower to the bottom of the ocean? And they got this chain attached to it, and there's an oxygen line that goes down, and you're being lowered a mile down to the ocean floor, and just before you get to the bottom, pow, that line snaps. Now, you got a lot of needs in your life, right? right? I mean, you need a better job. You need money. You need a boyfriend. Whatever it is. You, you, I mean, you're going to the bottom of the ocean floor with needs. You need Rogaine, Slim Fast. I mean, you need these things, right? You look around. You know who you are. <laughs> but in that moment, there is one need that trumps them all, doesn't it? When you've been down there for about 30 more minutes, you're done unless you get some oxygen. Listen, in this world, you and I are in that bell and we got about 30 more years left. Okay, it's not minutes. It doesn't change the illustration at all. We got 30 more years left and we're mad at God and we're running around because we can't have a boyfriend and more money or our Rogaine ran out or whatever. Listen, in this moment, there is no greater need in our life than the gospel. It is man's oxygen supply to life. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because Paul speaks of the gospel here, and I'm going to bring us through a couple of thoughts before we finish. Paul speaks of the gospel as that which is of first importance. That's the label he put on it. That's why it's our message It is of first importance. There's several points in your outline, but I really just want to drive home one in particular one. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and it goes on and talks about his appearances. Now, I would say, you know, Paul, I don't believe here, this is a good example of, of somewhat of a summary of the gospel, but it is not an all-encompassing summary of the gospel by any means. I mean, there's no mention here about the regenerative work of the Spirit that comes because Christ has been exalted the Father, though he, Jesus spoke of that and told his disciples about that. But here is Paul highlighting the gospel and saying it's of first importance. He draws our attention to the focal point of the gospel, In verses 3 through 4, here's the focal point of the gospel. The person and work of Christ. Who he is and what he did is the focal point of the gospel. Now, let me just major in these next two points here. 
It is one, it is of first importance, and you see this here in verse 2, it is essential to salvation. Right? Look there in verse 2. By which you are being saved. Now, let me, let me just ask this, because I don't know if we're all on the same page here. How many of us have a category for something called salvation in our lives? Not everybody does. Not everybody did in Jesus' day. Jesus ran around saying things like, you're a slave to sin, and, but just whew, right over their heads. Didn't get it. <laughs> slave, hey, dude, you, you see shackles on us? Okay, we, we aren't slaves to anybody. We've never been slaves. Well, you didn't get it, did you? You're a slave to sin. How many of us don't have a category for the need to be saved? Right, the guy in the diving bell needs to be saved. The person whose boat capsizes at sea, that guy needs to be saved. Do we have a sense that spiritually, I come to a place in my life where I realize I need to be saved? Someone must intervene into my life spiritually and save me. That's why we use that term. When did you get saved? Have you been saved? That's where that comes from because it's a biblical concept. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. You don't need to turn there, but the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel gospel he is not ashamed of. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel was the power of God for salvation. Salvation from what? What's the great peril that we're all in that we need to be saved from? Well, according to the Bible, there's a couple of them. And in our world today, the way we've defined God, it's very uncomfortable to stand up and say, well, we, first we need to be saved from God. What? The senile Santa Claus who's nice? Why on earth would we need to be saved from him? Well, because God gave laws to the universe with penalties for anyone who would break them and fall short of them. So the first thing that we're saved from is the penalty of having broken the laws of God. Now, I don't think anybody here would fail to admit, you ever broke God's laws? Yeah. Do you know you're in desperate shape? Oh, no, no, no. Let me tell you why I'm in desperate shape right now, Keith. The stock market has crashed. I thought I was going to retire two years from now. I don't know if I'm ever going to retire now. I just went to the doctor the other day. The doctor diagnosed me with this. Do you see how we, we're in our diving bell and everything else is a need to us? Because we're out of touch with the greatest need in our life is you're about to run out of oxygen. We have violated the laws of the God of this universe and we are going to stand before him and there will be a penalty from which God has found a way to save us. You know, when Paul received his gospel commission, he was told to go. He was told to go to the Gentiles and, and to rescue them from the domain of darkness, from the power of Satan. That's the second thing that, that the gospel does in saving us. The gospel saves us from the power of sin and from the power of the devil who is in this world, turning on the magnet, drawing us to sin. The Bible says the gospel saves us from that. You know, it's interesting what's said in Romans chapter 1. You can go back and read that again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, that's an interesting thought. 
Not the need of man. No, because you can't understand the need of man until you understand the righteousness of God. See, I'm going to think my need is Rogaine until I get around God and I realize, wow, God is righteous. God is holy in a way I've never considered. And I am not. I need to be saved. That's the power of God for salvation. You can see why Paul calls this a matter of first importance. It's the most important thing in our lives. Now, I put this question in your outline. How much of man's woes are flowing out of the power of sin and the dominion of Satan? Right, look around the woes of society. Listen to the evening news. Look at your friend's life who's struggling. Look through your own life. How many of the woes of humanity are flowing right out of the power of sin? Right, why did this man kill his wife? Because the power of sin, anger in somebody and hate can become so strong in a person that it owns you and it's going to tell you what to do next. You thought you were controlling it right up until the point that it turned on you, pulled your leash and you did something or said something that you never wished you would have said. You lost control, didn't you? Because of the power of sin. Now listen, most people aren't running around realizing that's what's going on in everybody's life. Right? And, you know, we live in this therapeutic world. Everybody's going to therapy these days. Everybody's reading pop psychology books. Well, you know, in a therapeutic world, you ever see the way the gospel gets treated by a therapeutic world? It's like a naive little child in a room full of scholars. And that's nice. You go to church. That's good. We would encourage that. But, you know, you have some serious problems in your life. It's almost like the religious, the relating to God aspect is, for, it's, it's, that's child's play. You have serious problems. But the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said the gospel was of first importance. It was more important than anything else. Now, you can understand why if you understand the theology of who we are. The Bible says I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. If I don't get life, I am dead in my trespasses and sins, but I'm coming to you for some therapy. What are you going to tell me? How to prop the corpse up differently? (laughs) Keith, I'm so glad you're here today. I've just returned from a conference. We've learned a new position. (laughs) You know, if you'll... (laughs) You know, how's that feel? Feel better? I don't know. Yeah? Yeah? Listen, Keith, I've met with a lot of folks. This is working for people. Okay, well, yeah? Yeah, I think I do feel better. Yeah. Look, you're still dead! Yeah, but I've propped up your self-esteem a little bit. I'm making you feel better about yourself, right? You are still dead. That's what the Bible says. So, you know, contrary to the deep thinking of our secular world, the gospel is not some naive little child. The gospel is the scholar informing us of why I am the way I am. Why do I struggle with what I struggle with? Tim Keller. He says, what must you do if you lack the humility, love, joy, and confidence you need to face the life issues before you? Right? Can you just stop and think about your life for a second? Isn't, I mean, he didn't even give an exhaustive list here, but can't you find your problems in one of those lacks? All right, I'm having some conflict, some relational conflict here, and my pride is involved. Okay, it's a lack of humility. Lack of love, lack of joy, lack of confidence. He says, 
you should not try to move on past the gospel to, quote, more advanced principles. Rather, you should shake yourself until more of the gospel coins drop and more of the fruit of the Spirit comes out. Until you do that, despite your sound doctrine, you will be as selfish, scared, oversensitive, insensitive, and undisciplined as everyone else. I love this picture there, this shaking the coins. You ever put money in a vending machine? Right, and it just kind of gets trapped inside here. It doesn't make it, you never hear it go clunk, right? You're just hearing it load up, clink, clink, clink. And you know there's a problem. You press the button and nothing comes out. You shake the machine and they all travel down, clink, Ah, now you press and something comes out. Listen, that's Christianity for a whole bunch of us. Go to church, we read something, we go to a Bible study, clink, 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 clink. Nothing's coming out. Nothing's coming out. Oh, what do I need? Well, I need to go get some therapy, I guess. Well, no, what you might need to do is just shake the content of the gospel down into your heart in a real way so that out of it might come humility and joy and love and a sense of confidence about living our lives. See, the gospel is of first importance to us. Let me just read this from your outline with you. Man suffers through a complicated, dysfunctional existence because he is unplugged from God and doesn't have the power to change what's of first importance. Why do we struggle the way we do? That's why. That's why life is so difficult. The experience of anxiety, depression, obsessions, addictions to pleasures, rage, guilt, control, manipulation are all the manifestations of the soul unsatisfied and ununited with God and therefore unable to be set free from sin and the dominion of Satan. Listen, if the gospel doesn't perform its powerful work in bringing me to him. Come to me. If the gospel doesn't bring me to Christ and convert my soul, you can prop my dead corpse up all you want. But you have not fixed my problem because what's of first importance is I'm a created being who was intended to show forth the glory of God and I am unplugged from him. I do not have his life in me. I might have ideas about him in me. I might know a bunch of facts. I might even go to a religious organization from time to time. But I don't have him in me. And this is the great dysfunction of the human heart. Let me skip to this last point. This is the mandate of the church. The gospel. Church, we exist for this reason. Well, at least this reason upon the earth. To show forth the glory of God in the gospel. We demonstrate that to one another. We demonstrate it into the heavens. We demonstrate it before this world. That is the mandate. The gospel is the mandate. It's very important. I started with the gospel because if we're all going and we're not going with the gospel, do you understand the problem that creates? So a lot of churches going. There's a lot of people going all over the place. There's a lot of humanitarian work taking place. There's a lot of going to people and helping them get further along in life, whatever that means for them. We're just kind of coming alongside that and we're helping out and we're sending people overseas and we're doing that. Well, well, if you're going, but you're not going with the gospel, then that's not the mandate that we're sent with. 
Go into all the world. Don't just go. Go and proclaim the gospel. Now, let me bring us back to the word go. Go is an attitude. Go is a posture. Go is the, is the way we lean into life. I put in your outline, the posture and preoccupying mindset of the disciple is go. That's what preoccupies us. It's go. It's how can I take the gospel? How can I extend the gospel somewhere else and in the reaches of where my life touches? How can I help others take the gospel into locations where I will never be able to go? But the preoccupation of my mind is not simply about my health. It's not simply about my job. It's not simply about my personal interest. The preoccupying clarification for a disciple is go with this message. Go into the world with the gospel. J.I. Packer again says, Paul came to Corinth with the aim he had wherever he went to communicate the gospel with a view to converting his hearers. Now, that's not that he let that be unique to Paul. That's what preoccupied Paul. Paul's preoccupation was to communicate the gospel with a view to converting his hearers wherever he went. That needs to be true for me as well. Keith took that job with a view of communicating the gospel to his hearers for the conversion of their soul. Keith went to that family reunion with the intent and purpose of communicating the gospel for the conversion of their soul. See, whatever it is that we do, we do with the intent of communicating the gospel. This is the posture of the disciple. He unites these two concepts in the single word he often uses to describe his ministry. Persuade. We persuade men. We persuade men to receive and respond to God's truth. Communication with a view to conversion ought never to be a matter of dispute among evangelicals. Beyond all question, this is our given task. Matt, Matt, you can go ahead and and come. Now, listen, I don't want to get too narrow in this this going dynamic. I'll put some examples in, in your outline there. You know, going with the gospel doesn't mean running out of the front of this church and standing at the corner of, of veterans in Florida Lee on a soapbox and, and reading from the Bible and preaching repentance to all the cars that pass by. You know, if God leads you to do that, okay. But our lives proclaim the gospel. Right? One of the things that I think, you know, how many of you guys have heard the term? It's a Jerry Bridges term. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. How many of y'all have heard that term? It's a great term. It's a great term. I'm I'm convinced, though, that much of it goes misunderstood. Wait, wait, do you mean that we need to every day remind ourselves that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man? He was died, buried, and resurrected, and rose again on the third day to give us life. Okay, let me do that again. Preach the gospel myself every day. Jesus Christ was incarnate. He died, was buried, was resurrected, rose again, third day to give us life. Okay, preach the gospel myself every day. No, No, that's just recounting the story of the gospel. To preach the gospel to myself, I'm going to have to take into account the grace of God that sent his son. See, when you get up and you start wrestling with the issues of your life, in this, with this many folks here, there are some folks seriously wrestling with whether or not you're accepted, whether people love you or not. And it can become the quest of your life. You can become obsessed by it. You become a manipulator. You become unhappy. 
You trade people in your life. You find fault with others. And this is what characterizes you. Well, what are you after? I just have this need to be loved. Okay, well, well, maybe you've overlooked something. Maybe you've overlooked the love of God contained in the gospel. I've heard authors call it, you know, my love cup needs to be filled. Okay. Well, I can tell you this. Whatever love you're going to give to me, I'm grateful for it, but it's tainted, weak, watered-down love. And if I keep trying to get it from you, I'm still going to feel unsatisfied. You see, because what my heart really longs for, it longs to be loved by God. We do the same thing with things like forgiveness. People wrestling here today, you're wrestling with guilt, and I bet you've heard this counsel from somebody. You know what your problem is? You just need to learn how to forgive yourself. All right, well, go have at that. Come back and tell me 10 years later how good you're still feeling. Let me tell you why that doesn't work. One, because the Bible never tells you to do that. You know, the Bible never tells you you need to learn to forgive yourself. See, because when you sinned, you sinned for yourself. You didn't sin against yourself. You sinned for you. Why'd you do that? For my benefit. It's what I wanted to do. Well, you don't need to forgive yourself for that. You need to be forgiven for that. Well, where do I get forgiveness from? From the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to take the specific sin right now that you feel the most guilt about on himself, on the cross, and to say, I will pay it in full. The Bible says Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God, every drop of punishment from that righteous, holy God that we deserve for that sin was poured out completely on the Son of God so that he could turn and say, you know that issue in your life that people tell you you need to forgive yourself? No, what you need is my forgiveness. And if I have forgiven you, go and be free. No longer accuse yourself. No longer let the devil accuse you and don't let anybody else accuse you. You were wrong, but I have forgiven you. And now we are right. See, that's what our hearts long for. That's the implications of the gospel. It's not just the storyline of Jesus coming to the earth. It's the humility that I get wrapped in by God when I realize, you know, am I better than anybody here today? Am I better than anybody who's not in this church? You know, I mean, I know some things, and man, I I can read the Bible, and I know some things about the Bible. Oh, really? Keith, is that what saved you? Did you get saved because you were just more serious about God? You were more holy than other people? You knew more Bible verses? You changed your life? Oh, I've heard stories about what you used to be like, Keith. You changed all that, and you presented yourself to God, and then God saved you. Well, if that were the story, then I could be quite arrogant here today. But what if the previous description I said is really the truth? That I was a selfish sinner running toward my own pleasure and wanting God to be of third, fourth, and 365th importance in the universe of my life. When he ran me over and poured out love on me and made me aware of my sin, but showed me his wrists and said, I died for those so that I could give you forgiveness. Listen, you know what that does for me by way of humility? It it humbles me because I don't deserve what's in my life. I don't deserve this favor from God. I'm certainly no better than anybody else here. 
Listen, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Now today, perhaps there's some here who need to come to the gospel. To come. There are many here who need to go with the gospel. And that's what I want God to do in our last moments together. So let's, let's stand up together. Lord, we have postured our hearts to receive your word today. Holy Spirit, now we, we wait for you to stir our hearts, to affect us with truth, to give us willingness to respond, to put hunger in our lives. God, thank you that this morning you find us individually. We're not just a collected group listening to a message. God, we're individuals that you are affecting us specifically. I just want you to be quiet before the Lord. I don't want you to look around or open your eyes or just be private with you and God for a moment. What is your greatest need this morning? It may be that you have been attending church or pursuing religion because you are putting your hope in some form of God aid in your life. You want your life to be a certain way and you figure God will help you do that. But this morning, perhaps you're realizing your greatest need is to be reconciled to God. That's your greatest need. Your greatest need is to hear God call your name and be personal with you and say, my son, whom I love, came to this earth for you, whom I love. And he died Take away your sins so there'd be no barrier between us. Today, I want you to come to me. Come to me. Perhaps you're here this morning and you realize your greatest need is to come to God. Well, if that's really what you understand your need to be, well, then this morning, come to him. Come to him by turning away from whatever you've been living your life for, whatever priorities, whatever sins, have taken God's place, put those things down and turn away from them. Take your hope out of those things and take the hope of your life and turn toward God right, right now and say, God, I put my hope in you. I'm, I'm coming to you this morning. I'm coming to you to forgive me for the years that I've wasted. I'm coming to you f- to forgive me for the sins that no one else knows about. I'm coming to you to cleanse my life I'm coming to you for a new start. Most importantly, God, I'm coming to you so that my life can be whatever you've wanted it to be. I'm coming to you this morning. If you're sensing God relating to you, listen, he was looking for you before you were looking for him. So you don't have to wonder whether he's here. 
I have to chase him down. He's been chasing you down. And this morning, God has overtaken you. Just receive from him. Just receive this morning. Just begin to tell God, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for this story of Christmas, your son coming to earth, living the life I could never have lived and dying in my place. Thank you that today he's here to give me life. I receive from you, Lord. I receive the gospel. Receive the power of the gospel. I receive your life. No longer am I a corpse trying to adjust my life. God, I receive your life in my heart this morning. And there are some here. At some point in your life, you came to that point with the gospel. What you're needing to hear this morning is not come, but go. Go. Your life is a depiction of the grace of God. It's a picture of God's love. It's a message to be delivered. It's a proclamation to be given to others through the way you live your life, through the relationships you form, through the message and the hope that you have in your heart. God, I pray this morning for those who are here, have at some other point answered the call to come, Lord, that now that they would hear that same voice that said come, they will hear the voice that says go. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Go and make disciples. God, we want to be a healthy church called by your name. We want a message of life that's so real in us, God, that we are compelled by it. The love of Christ controls us. It sends us, compels us into others' lives. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come right now as we close in song? Would you come? Be in our midst. Communicate to our hearts. Raise up faith in our hearts. Raise up courage in our hearts, God. Raise up boldness in our lives. You have given us a mandate. You have the right to do that. Oh, God, what joy awaits us as we trust you and walk in your ways and go into all the world. Grace unmeasured, vast and free that knew me from eternity that called me out before my birth to bring you glory on this earth grace amazing pure and deep that saw me in my misery that took my curse and known my blame so I could bear your righteous name. Grace paid for my sins and brought me to life. Grace clothes me with power to do what is right. see your face and never cease to thank you for your grace. 
grace abounding. Grace abounding, strong and true, that makes me long to be like Turns me from my selfish pride to love the cross on which you died. Grace unending all my days, give me strength to run this race. When my years on earth are through, the praise will all belong to your face and never cease to thank you for your grace and grace grace paid for my sins and brought me to life grace clothes me with power to do what is right see your face and never cease to thank you for your as we come as we go and never cease to thank you for your grace and never cease to thank you for your grace make us a people who see your grace as bold and powerful and amazing in our eyes. Lord, help that to compel us to go. As Paul said, he was constrained by the love of Christ to proclaim your good news of redemption through the cross by your mercy. Take us from here with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.